This podcast episode is brought to you by Coors Light. These days, everything is go, go, go. It's nonstop hustle all the time. Work, friends, family expect you to be on 24-7. Well, sometimes you just need to reach for a Coors Light because it's made to chill. Coors Light is cold lagered, cold filtered, and cold packaged. It's as crisp and refreshing as the Colorado Rockies. It is literally made to chill. Coors Light is the one I choose when I need to unwind. So when you want to hit reset, reach for the beer that's made to chill. Get Coors Light in the new look delivered straight to your door with Drizzly or Instacart. Celebrate responsibly. Coors Brewing Company, Golden, Colorado. Matt Chernoff from 680 The Fans, Chuck and Chernoff Show here. And I want to say thanks for listening to today's episode of the Chase Thomas Podcast. You can find it on Apple, Spotify, and all your favorite podcast apps. Chase Thomas went to Parkview in North Georgia. He's a local Atlanta kid, and he won't let the Luca versus Trey thing go. He interned with us back in the day, and you'll always remember him. Anyway, definitely go check out ChaseThomasPodcast.com, where you can find all of Chase's previous episodes, all of his articles, and do him a solid. Leave him a rating and review if you're an Apple Podcast listener. Reminder to listen to our show, Chuck and Chernoff, Monday through Friday, 3 to 7 on 680 The Fan, and subscribe to my podcast as well. Welcome to Matlana, wherever you get your podcasts. Chase Thomas podcast. The Chase Thomas podcast. Um, my nephew needs me to record. See, I hate. I already hate it. I hate it. All right, hello, and welcome to a Sunday special of You Say and Thomas. Philip You Say is here. Philip, good afternoon, evening. I don't know when. It's almost six o'clock when we're recording. Is this evening or is it still afternoon? I don't know. How are evening. you? Good evening, Chase. Um, personally, I'm not a fan of of good evening because it makes me feel like I'm in like Victorian England. Oh, uh, but it's a good way of speaking, though. It's it's very good nice. evening, sir. Yeah. Good evening. How are it just it just feels like it just it just feels like kind of pretentious kind of yeah kind of old timey mm-hmm. you know well uh, pretentious is my 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 thing I, I i love a good pretentious sounding um opening to this podcast i think it uh, sets the tone and sets the table for what kind of podcast we'll be doing we have to i don't know maybe uh lean into it a little bit more Who knows? well well you could always start off by saying greetings greetings like everyone greetings. Uh, it does it does sound a bit otherworldly like, like uh greetings. like greetings or greetings earthlings mm, humanoids that it's 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 definitely inclusive it's it's right. inclusive yeah except for animals you know <laughs> well i don't think animals are listening to this podcast so i don't think we have to worry about that as far as we know that is as true far as we know well where is uh our um what is his name your dog's name. I always, it's like a color. Indigo. Indigo. That's what it <laughs> it's is. Like, it's it's like a color. A color. <laughs> I knew it's a color. Indigo. Yeah. Right. He is yeah. he uh, is he around? Could he be listening to this podcast, or is he deaf? Because our dogs are extremely old and can't really hear anyway. You know, he has like selective hearing. Mm. Uh, he he hears when we open the door to the laundry room because he knows where that's where the treats are. Okay. And and he hears uh, he hears when the garage door opens because. Sometimes that means that we're coming upstairs from the grocery store with treats for him. Mm. Um, uh, so anything that pretends to him getting treats, he can hear. Everything else is just out the window. Interesting. Okay. I like yeah. it. I think that's um, – I don't know. I don't think it's a bad thing. It's a good life. Or you just, if we, you know if we, I'm zoning out. This yeah. Is yeah, I like it. If we have stress. like – It is a lot less stressful, yeah. If we uh, – if we talk about dog treats at some point on this podcast, I'll maybe put this on a speaker and see if, if his ears light up because he, he, he understands that, that if there's one word he understands in the English language, it's, it's treats. There you go. Yeah. Um, well, we'll be talking about Nightcrawler uh, this week on the podcast. One of my favorites, yeah. it's uh, Jake Gyllenhaal. So, you, I mean, uh, what more do I need to say about the greatest actor of the last 20 years? Um, Jake Gyllenhaal, but uh, lost a lot of weight for this role. He mm. uh, very bug eyed, very creepy. Sets the tone mm. early um, yeah. in this movie by uh, trying to break into a chain link fence and sell it. And he's clearly a, just a loner who doesn't a sociopathic loner who mm-hmm. has no idea how to make this all work. Like he's on the outskirts. He's clearly been forgotten by society. He's just been alone for a really long time. And he just 
it, it's funny that he is so obsessed with small businesses and like how businesses work and that yeah. he clearly doesn't know what he's doing and he's just figuring it out on the fly but he's so confident and so articulate and so conniving and cerebral that you're like this guy's always had a plan but then you're like how is he here at this point in his life just trying to sell um stolen goods to make into me it's it's so complicated this character is so complicated but he is incredible and the the common comparison i've seen to this um role and the way this movie was shot and everything else was that it reminded people of taxi driver like his character oh yeah oh yeah 100 percent. so you see that too yeah 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 100 percent. um it's well to me this movie could be like a definite homage to taxi driver um obviously you have uh this kind of exploration of of this borderline sociopathic person who uh like you said is just trying to make ends meet and and survive in LA which uh you know god knows is is an incredibly difficult thing to do just because you know especially as a as a as a journalist or anyone who's working in um in TV news you know it's it's a grind um with this I think I, I think I found myself. If we're making that comparison, though, I think I was much better able to connect with with Robert De Niro's character in Taxi Driver. I felt more empathy for him than 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 Jakey G. I don't over, think you're supposed to feel any here. empathy for Lou Bloom in this movie. Yeah, man, he's he's just like a not good person. Uh, there's no no redeeming qualities about him, which is an interesting uh, an interesting thing to do. Um, with the main character, uh, the movie is, is, is literally all about him. I mean, he's on the screen like 95% of the time. Mm-hmm. Um, so this must've been an, an incredibly, uh, challenging and difficult role for him to play just because I'm, I'm assuming he, he must've been in character for the, the entirety of this shoot. Um, uh, with, I haven't watched any of the, any of the videos, uh, of, of like, him breaking down what it was like to film this, but I think of, uh, I think of Joker and, and like apparently Joaquin Phoenix, you know, everyone assumed that because he played that role so masterfully that he was just in the headspace of Joker, the entire, the entirety of the shoot. But he was like, no, like I like shoot scenes would end. And like Todd Phillips and I would just like crack jokes and and like you know we, we'd take walks and i would just you know i like would get out of character because it was just such a dark place with with lou bloom i don't know i think <laughs> i think he's probably man i think he's probably in I character most of closer, the stuff. i think this is closer to jake gyllenhaal's disposition than joaquin phoenix's was for joker i think that helps too is that mm. he plays this kind of character in prisoners he put pl- with loki he does something similar in Nocturnal Animals. I mean, he is very much someone who's comfortable operating in this space. Like Jake Gyllenhaal realizing that he's weird and leaning into that was the best thing that ever happened to him is realizing yeah. that he was not built for rom-coms and that hmm. he was actually meant to be a weirdo in a bunch of creepy, intense, beautifully shot movies. Like that is his thing. Like his blinking in Prisoners were just incredible like little things like that where he just is so good at giving looks he's so good at being terrifying without saying anything like jake does not have to say much he is not someone who has to say a lot to leave an imprint on any movie that he's in he is just someone you have to follow and you're just captivated by his little movements and little looks and like when he's just moving around and like moving by like Every movement that this guy, Lou Bloom, makes is creepy. Like, he just does it so well. It's just it every little thing. He's like a rat. Like, yeah. the best way to describe yeah. it is he is a rat. <laughs> he's he's like... Um, he's like the... Uh, I mean, I don't, I, I don't want to make comparisons because, I, like, truly... I think this role is, I don't, I, I can't imagine anyone who might, may have played this as well. Maybe, I mean, Mary, maybe Jared Leto, but like, um, I think of like the nuances of some of these scenes where, you know, we see him processing 
and it's just like slight movements of his eyes or like twitches in his in his face or like the way that he kind of moves his head says everything um why don't we why don't we tell tell the folks what this movie is about um and then we can kind of unpack uh unpack our angles i would also would love to hear kind of your take on it too as especially especially as someone who's um who who is in not who's in this field kind of tangentially Mm. you know obviously um you being being in journalism would love to kind of hear hear your thoughts on um what this movie means as a commentary on on voyeurism and and uh kind of shock value news i think that wasn't the point i think that was like a avenue for dan gilroy who directed this movie i think he used the network type thing to make the movie like that was that was not the plot like i think it you could have the plot was really let's follow this sociopath try to make ends meet in la like i think you could have done that with and he finds a job like you could have picked any job for this but he found because remember he is just stealing stuff he stumbles into a car wreck like after getting denied a job at um the construction place right so he's driving down the road and he just unfortunately for bill paxton just uh as we find out later in the movie yeah um that this was just bad luck because he's just riding around and he's just an aimless sociopath and i think the commentary is not necessarily on tv news as much because it is a little over the top like the if it bleeds it leads stuff that they lean into here is a little hokey and i think a little too over the top of just like there there are some moments with um the guy from Mad Men who's in this movie i forgot his name um tom from Mad Men, but he his facial expressions are all over the top and like his oh we can't do this you can't uh, the store this is the story he has this line which is super goofy where he's like that's the story and she's like no the story and she like about just terror creeping into rich suburbia whatever like that kind of stuff is very low-hanging fruit when talking about today's uh media climate and just like focusing on the negative and focusing on the blood and like they talk about how um I think Lou, when he's negotiating in just an unbelievable scene about um, his relationship with his boss, um, who's actually the wife of who directed this movie. Um, yeah. But anyway, name or so. yeah, who was also just incredible. And uh, I think the whole movie is really about, let's see what this sociopath, like this sociopath who isn't getting checked and is just, maneuvering all over the place undetected that he just is able to get by and build and build and sometimes these weirdos get lucky like he really gets lucky multiple times in this movie and it could have gone south for him and clearly it went south for him a lot before this but i think ultimately it's just about a loner sociopath who finds his footing in a world that's just not ready to handle him because they don't know what to do like every character he encounters like you text me about um what is his name uh they're riz ahmed yes uh riz ahmed their chemistry is great and he's scared of him like he's scared of him throughout but he like it's the same with renee Rizzo. like she's right. terrified of him as it keeps going on like yeah and the, even the police officer becomes increasingly terrified at just how good he is at being a sociopath and covering his tracks and everything else that like this whole thing is just about <laughs> this guy playing chess while everybody else is playing checkers and <laughs> i am i off base by framing the movie this way no i i don't i don't think so i think um i think you're right in that, you know, TV news being the vehicle through which we explore, um, explore, you know, his, his quirks and, mm-hmm. uh, his kind of detachment from reality. And, right. and we dive into what is the sociopath. It's the same vehicle that, you know, the, the ta- being a taxi driver is in, you know, for Robert mm-hmm. De Niro's character in taxi driver. So, <clears throat> um, I, I have, I have some thoughts on, um, you know, if if we if if we're going down the route of uh of what what does this movie say about American culture uh from the standpoint of like well how much violence are we willing are we willing to accept how much Schadenfreude is uh is is too much before we're <clears throat> before we're just completely un, unable to um to 
relate to each other in in like a human way as opposed to just like being kind of like voyeurs on 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 other people's you know problems um i have i have some thoughts around that but <clears throat> excuse me um basically the the movie i guess in a in a in a few sentences is about this like you said this this kind of skeevy um uh uh, uh, and yet hardworking, um, uh, guy named Lou Bloom, um, who, who kind of just survives, uh, based on his own wits, um, and through kind of like petty theft. Uh, and he eventually, uh, ends up, you know, kind of just stumbling into this new career, uh, after there's a car crash on the highway and Bill Paxson's character, like he sees, he sees him run up to this car and, uh, start filming, uh, these police officers saving a woman from the wreck. And then immediately we start to see the wheels turning in his head. Um, you know, this, this could potentially be a very lucrative thing for me because he talks about, Oh, I'm going to sell, I'm selling this tape for X amount of dollars. And, and we just see his, 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 the lights start to come on upstairs. So he's right. like, maybe this, this is a career that I can, I can do. So he eventually, um, get, you know, gets the attention of, uh, Rene Russo's character. Who's a, a TV news director, um, who's kind of obsessed with, um, with increasing the ratings of her station. I was gonna say, can we pause there about her when he meets her? That's another thing about this movie where mm-hmm. he, the, the luck factor <clears throat> where he lucked into a desperate, newscaster like she needed him. right like he lucked into it. most news like he would not have had the same success he would not have had the same leverage anywhere else he right. lucked out with this and i think he realized at certain point that he did have leverage here but like he still stumbled into this like it wasn't like this long thought out plan that he just through sheer luck fell into a situation where he could leverage himself in a major way. Like he's always looking for leverage clearly mm-hmm. um, in negotiations. And he's clearly uh, obsessed with reading business books. Right. But he, the light bulb goes off and he realizes, Oh, I finally found one that I can uh, manipulate and I can leverage my own value there, but it's going to take some time to get there. But he listens. And like when he listens to Bill Paxton, what he it, mm-hmm. like until he doesn't need him anymore. And like the scene of like, I feel like <laughs> grabbing you by the ears and yeah, screaming at yeah. You, screaming at your face. Yeah, like those are things he's confident enough at the end, but he still had to stumble into that, and he still used that person at the beginning. He still used Rene Russo's character early on, and then got there. But he still was fortunate to find those people when he did, because if he doesn't, if he doesn't find Riz when he does and answer the ad, does any of this happen? Like Riz answered the ad, and he was homeless and needed money. And Mm -hmm. he was vulnerable. He pounces on vulnerable people in his life. But clearly before this, he didn't find as many vulnerable people. And like the guy at the construction place was not vulnerable. He didn't need Lou. Oh, that's a great point. Need Lou. He destroys. So the vulnerability aspect was very fortunate for him. Yeah, no, that's, that's a good point. Everyone that he needs, everyone that needs him. Yeah. He ends up destroying them. Um, that's, that's an interesting that's an interesting, uh, take on it. Um, I, I thought, I thought his success, w- uh, came at, oh, first of all, just, just to kind of round out the description of the movie. Um, you know, after, uh, after he, uh, gets in, you know, closer with, with Renee Russo's character, um, and, and, you know, she develops this dependency on the, all of the, the CD, um, uh, recordings that he's going to, to different, places around LA to, to take, um, increasingly those encounters escalate. So he's going around to like car fires and, and like, uh, you know, we see this, this database that he starts to build out of all of these terrible things that he's like going and recording. And and eventually he, you know, is the first person on, on scene for, um, he even beats the police, uh, to a murder. And like he witnesses some things that um, are clearly, you know, would be vital to helping solve the case. But he sits on it so that uh, he could, you know, get a better story. And um, the the movie <laughs> ends, of course, in 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 some pretty uh, d- disappointing deaths. 
Um, but yeah, so all of that is, is to say that, you know, the way that, you know, we encounter Lou from the very beginning to the very end, there's not much of a, there's not much of a character arc there. Like it's like what you see is very much what you get. Um, and we see that from a little bit of a character arc in that I think he, by the end of it, he is so confident like being in the police station and then building out his business with VPN with the, the vans and everything. Like, yeah, I do think he grows in confidence. I don't think he has it all together. Cause you clearly see him rattled when Bill Paxton's beating into places. Like, I don't think he was, he still had a plan, but mm-hmm. he, over the course of the months of this going on and getting better and, um, it's going to be getting better and just what he built gave him the confidence to escalate like i don't know if he could have done the where he's pulling the the um the guy who uh dies in the car wreck uh, around the hill and pulls him back so he gets a better shot oh yeah shoots him up. yeah like that is something he was not going to do two or three months prior but because he got so comfortable and he knew he had to keep getting bigger and better to keep getting more money and to, yeah. so he could buy his Dodge charger. Like yeah. he knew he had to continue to escalate, but I don't think he had the confidence early on. Like, I don't think he was as, he was still nervous when he was trying to negotiate the stolen goods in um, the construction yard. Like he was clearly rattled and he just left and he was kind of like, he was desperate at the point when yeah. he drove past uh, Bill Paxton. And at the end of the movie, he's not desperate at all. Like he knows he's kind of already won and he's leveraged all these different people that were vulnerable to him to build his own empire. Like he realized it early on. Yeah. I think it's a testament to, to Jake Gyllenhaal's acting or maybe my, maybe this is just my interpretation of it. But from the very beginning, you know, you can tell that he's not a, he's not a normal person. Right. Like he's not, um, Do we think he killed the, the security guy in the opener i've never known for sure i i assumed i assumed so because okay. how how else would you and that's that's part of the reason that i that i do think the things that he does throughout the film that are uh that are just really seedy uh he had he had it in him all along because within the first you know 3 minutes he he he's like trying to get into, you know, he's using bolt cutters to get through a fence. And then a security guard comes up to him and asks like, what are you doing? And, and he very, you know, Lou very calmly goes up to him and is like, Oh, I don't see a badge. And, you know, I I was just lost. And so there is, there is, uh, there is a competence there that, um, that's apparent. Right. But then, then things just kind of flip on a dime and he assaults him and, and, like all of a sudden we're in the next scene and we see that he's wearing his watch. And I think we have to assume that, that, yeah, he, he killed him because what, like how else would, would he have been able to, I guess, cover that up? Um, like maybe, I don't know. Maybe it's, it's, it's a detail that's like left out of the script, but my interpretation was like, yeah, like this, this guy is a he's just a cold killer. <laughs> Um, from yeah. the very beginning, so I'm sure people people have uh, have different interpretations of that scene, but um, Interesting. yeah, it was it was wild. Hmm. That, and then it goes back to like, did he? Now you have me wondering because if he did kill him, <laughs> because then he has the trophies of, and this is a, the other one of the worst things that you can do. So this is something that also set the table with his interaction with the security guard. Is that mm-hmm. the worst thing you can do to Lou Bloom is back him into a corner. Yeah. When he gets at the, like, it, it comes full circle in this movie because at the end, with Riz, he tries to back Lou into a corner. And you're sitting there and you're like, this guy has no idea what he's doing. Like, he has no idea. This is like the one thing you cannot do to this guy or he will kill you. Like, yeah. He, he really, said, I mean, he yeah. explicitly said, like, if you do not do what I want you to do, like, I'm inclined to hurt you physically. <laughs> right. You know, like, that was just a chilling scene. He, this, I mean, this is when, uh, they were and this is kind of like the climax of the movie where um you know uh, Lou and and Rick follow the the murderers to uh, a diner and they they've essentially engineered this shot so that um you know Lou will get the will use his camcorder to cover the front of the diner 
and Rick will get out of the car and, you know, film the police coming up and they know that something is about to go down. Like they, they see that the two, uh, murderers have a gun under the table and, and Rick is like, no, I'm not, I'm not doing it. And, and Lou is like, you're doing this because if you don't, I'm going to hurt you physically. Right. And, and you, and, and you can tell like from the way that, from the way that, um, that Rick is, is reacting or, or not reacting and just simply getting out of the car and following orders that, that this is a, this is a guy who means business. He definitely does. And I think one of the sad parts is he just, he has no idea. Like he's already signed his death warrant before he even threatens him with physical violence. Because I think Lou had already made up his mind. He was going to kill him. Like yeah. he was going to do it because when he re entered negotiations for that, like he didn't know that he just signed his death warrant by going back on that because Lou weirdly has a code where mm. he is very, remember when he like gets really adamant. He's like, I've never used the F word in front of an employer in my entire career. Like yeah. he says stuff like that. And you're like, yeah. he has this weird sense of, um, I don't know how to describe this. How would you describe it? He has a weird, it's not just a code, but like a weird, hmm, obsession with the American dream almost because yeah. he's really into, I'm a hard worker. He describes himself, I'm a hard worker and he wants to start tomorrow and he's happy to work. He's a workaholic. He believes in selling to the highest bidder. He's big on negotiating. He's big on whatever the value, he, like whatever he can sell his stuff for is the actual value it's worth and all that kind of stuff. But if you break those American norms with him, those business norms, he is, that's, that's a huge thing for him. Like that's a yeah. weird thing that makes him break. So then you wonder like what happened to this guy's life that he just loses it if you change negotiations. But like Riz trying to extort Lou Bloom was a, a very fatal, uh, ill-advised move on his part. Yeah, clearly, clearly. Um, one of the things that, I noticed from the very beginning was how much, uh, first of all, I love, I love movies that are filmed in LA because LA always inevitably just becomes a character in and of itself in the film. Mm-hmm. Um, so movies like LA confidential and, and Chinatown and, you know, the big Lebowski, um, 48 hours, even like these, these films, uh, enable the city of Los Angeles and all of its, its different pockets and microcultures to, to, take on a life of its own. And I I think that's something that is really unique to the LA area because it's such a, it's such a poorly planned city that, um, you can, you can drive anywhere within the, the kind of 10, 10 square mile radius of, of the, of like LA proper and be in such different neighborhoods, right? Like it's just a, it's just a patchwork of communities that are stitched together by, by highways. And so, um, the stories that, that Lou is going around and, and getting, uh, figure prominently in, uh, and like wealthier suburban areas, like the whole, the whole conceit is that, um, you know, the, the news station is trying to raise its, its ratings by showing like the plight of like white, suburban middle-class families being terrorized by like the encroaching crimes of, of like minorities and, and in the area. Right. And so, um, LA begins to, you, you, you begin to travel around to these different places like Echo Park and, um, and, and, and Silver Lake. And, um, it just becomes like it, like the city kind of takes on, a life of its own. And so like the scenes where they're like racing through traffic, which are really, really well done. I love, I love all of the night shots where like, it feels like a, a, a car chase, but it's, it's clearly only, you know, it's only Lou and Rick driving. Um, like they're, they're racing off to some, uh, to some event, like using their police scanner to get there, hopefully before. Also, are you the... allowed to do this? Can you just follow the cops like this in a high speed chase? Because that was something I wrote down where I was just like, it's kind of amazing that they're just zooming around, following them, and like riding a cop's ass as yeah. he's chasing a, a murder suspect. Like, very strange to me. Is that a thing? Do we know? Do you have any? I don't know. Chasing cops, um, who are chasing uh, chasing cops, <laughs> chasing cops. Uh, I don't know. I think I think in that situation, like. 
I, w- I want to say there are safety standards, mm. right? Like I want to say that like if, a, if, if an active crime is going on, uh, y- y- like a random person can't just show up with a video camera. Right. Um, I would like, cause most of the stories that we see on the evening news, you know, we see, we see those interviews take place after the situation has kind of died down. But the whole right. point of, of, the night crawler is that he is he's there while it's happening while it's unfolding and getting this kind of almost like reality tv footage putting putting the viewer as close as possible into the gore and the grit and the horror of the of these situations um and people do which love are so- people love and that's the other thing is like the ratings for this kind of stuff so people will overlook what kind of person it takes to do this stuff every night because mm-hmm. they love that thing. So it, it speaks to the American culture in a grander sense in that we will look past all kinds of stuff or like we'll look past it how something was made if it is intriguing to us. And no matter like how immoral Lou gets in this movie, like he gets progressively more immoral and obviously staging scenes for his art because he sees this yeah. as art at this point. Um, yeah. He doesn't see them as human beings. And that's something he also says where he's like, what if it's not that I don't understand human beings? It's that I just don't like them. And that is a very <laughs> pogent, important point to get to his inner psyche. And I think um, this is a, something that Americans do. Like, you don't think about as it's happening that, oh, this is amazing. And you're just texting your friends. Like, you watching this footage of uh, the voyeur of the shot of, like, him slowly moving over to the crib and the murder, the triple homicide yeah. in the house. Like, that kind of thing where you're just like, this is wrong. Like, you know this is wrong. Um, but... And you know this person who did this clearly has no ethical boundaries at all. Just doesn't matter. But you also have to look at the newscasting. Like some of this falls on the fact that she enabled him. Like she knew immediately that he was bad news because remember he broke into that house where he just the first house, um, the shooting that went through the neighbor. Remember he's shooting on the the small thing and he said he got let in. Yeah, like he thought he he thought he heard someone say come in. She yep. knows. That no one did that she knows yep. that he's willing to break the rules from the start and then yep. he progressively gets worse and that speaks to the confidence thing that i was talking about where like he starts off with that and then realizing that he can get away with that he expands and gets more and more confident and i think that's just how like the sociopathic thing works right is they it was always there but then you, you just like enable them so much that they just expand and expand right and, you yeah. give them an inch and they take a, a mile right <laughs> Um, to me, like Lou's character kind of is, is a real life embodiment of, of Twitter. (laughs) Mm. Okay. I'm ready for this. I'm ready for this (laughs) metaphor. Explain. Yeah. Because I mean, he represents the, the sick kind of unspoken obsession that we all have with witnessing each other's pain. At least those, those of us who, who watch who have ever watched the evening news um, and especially in this day and age, those of us who, um, you know, we, we get on Twitter to see what's going wrong in the country and in the world. Like nothing, nothing good is ever trending on Twitter. Yeah. <laughs> you know what I mean? And yet, and yet we derive such, uh, such a, a, a contact high by, um, by seeing like, w- like what hit the fan today. Um, and, and like, Lou is just giving the people what they want, right? Like if there's one, if there's one, well, I even hesitate to say one because I, if I was going to say if there's one trait that I, I can see as a redeeming quality, it's that Lou is simply providing a, um, uh, a service that capitalism is enabling, uh, people to, you know, consume these, these stories but at the same time, like he, he's just like not, he's just a terrible person. So I, I don't, I don't like, I don't like his character at all. But basically my point is that, um, people, people want to feel, uh, uh scared, you know, yeah. like it's, it's a, it's a, it's a weird thing. I think like emotionally and psychologically, uh, and evolutionarily like human beings, um, crave the you know and cling to fear as a way of reminding them 
of a lot of different things. It could be that they're alive or that, that they have things that, um, that other people are, are out to get so that they need to protect themselves. Um, I think fear helps to congeal, you know, group identity and it, and it helps to, um, you know, uh, conserve resources and, and, and re and it reproduces itself in the form of, um, in the form of, of discrimination and, and, you know, uh, unequal access to, to certain economic resources. So like fear, fear is a tool that I think, um, television news uses and wields especially well because we, we let them use it to manipulate us. So to that, to that extent, like Lou as a stringer, as a person who's just like a freelance person going and getting these, these, um, these CD, CD footage, footages from, um, of the CD footage from, from all these, all of these different crimes. Uh, he's just, he's just giving the people what they want, you know, like, and there's something to be said for that. Uh, <laughs> I think we spent a lot of time criticizing, criticizing yeah, him. Basically gave him pay raises every week. Yeah. 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 Because he broke the rules and, or I, I don't know if they were hard, set and fat, hard and fast rules of. Well, I mean, he definitely committed some crimes here. Like the uh, <laughs> committed some crimes. I don't think you're supposed to move the body for a better shot. Um, oh right, wreck. right. You're of course, to cut up uh, a, a video <laughs> of two obvious murder suspects and then start the like that. Uh, you just walked in and uh, not yeah. wait for the police to get there. I don't think those are legal things you should, yeah. should be doing. But 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 there are the scenes where the lawyer was like, well, obviously, yeah. So blur the like, face the, and uh, everything else. But they don't even think about the fact that he's just in there before exactly. There. They don't even exactly. think, consider that kind of stuff. They're just like, can we show this? They're not worried about. They're like, can we just not get sued? And that's I think unfortunately part of a lot of uh, current American business things of just like not worrying about the bottom line over anything else. Yeah, I wonder. I wonder how much of this is exaggerated. I'm assuming a, mm. a lot of it is, but like from a from a policy standpoint, like if if a crime happens, can a random person show up and get as possible as close as possible to film it? And and I'm answering my own question because I'm thinking about obviously the fact that George Floyd's murder was was filmed. Right. And like that person was was on site. And right. so I guess they had like people have a right to take out a, a, and, and record things. So mm-hmm. but like to when I'd like be really interested, like going into a crime scene, like he went into a crime scene and like broke into someone's house. Essentially, if you're out on the street in a public setting, you can do whatever you want. You can film whoever. But I think once you because when he was crossing the line or when you move a body um, a little yeah. different. Um, and you place yourself there because if you're just observing from afar, I think it's a little bit different than when Lou makes him, he's like part of the crime now. Like he's like part of the situation. And when you're just recording from afar, that's a little bit different. You're just a videographer. But if you're Lou, you're like now part of the story and you're controlling the narrative. Yeah. I mean, his excuse was that he heard someone at like asking for help and, he just so happened to have a video camera, <laughs> right? You know, and he was—he just so happened to be at the right place at the right time to get the to get the shot. Um, also, a really slow response time for those cops because he was in there for a while. He was walking up and down. He was—he was. He was uh, you're you're gonna love this night crawling around. He was the, night crawling, yeah, around <laughs> the house like he's just doing a slow. All right, here's the dead woman on the couch. We're gonna move up the stairs, like. The reaction time, like he was in there for at least like 15 minutes. Oh, yeah. Shooting he, was, everything. He, was, he was getting his, his cinematographer on. Right. He like he like, had time to really change the lighting. He was. I know. It, he had a lot of time before the cops actually showed up for a triple homicide. So not a great look for the LAPD. Yeah. Uh, <laughs> I don't know if if if, uh, if that's where the if that's a taxpayer dollars uh, commentary. I remember this. Yeah, we need to we need to investigate. Um, it's funny because LA Confidential is like that's that's not the case at all. Like the police are the police will be there in in five seconds, but mm. they're also incredibly corrupt. So you know, wow. Well, this would you rather have accurate. one star? One star. 
as opposed to the no, I got a ninety five percent on Rotten Tomatoes, and I think that's I think that's fair. I, I think it was a great movie. So really who was your movie. who was your favorite uh, performance? Who which was it? Jake or was there anybody else that really? I think it had yeah. I think it had to have been had to have been Jake. Um, and I think you you touched on this early on that uh, it, you know you'd be hard pressed to find a person who's better suited to play this character because like you said, he's, he, he just kind of like understands the, the nuances of how to be creepy, you know? Uh, and it's in his tone of voice, it's in his mannerisms, it's in, it's in his cadence. Like he's extremely, extremely, uh, eloquent. Like he's great with words. He, uh, he's, he's very, um, not robotic. He's, but, but more, uh, uh, if he's very efficient with his with his speech, so everything that he says um, just seems super imperative, very well thought out, and there are you can tell that there there are a lot of lights switched on upstairs, um, and yeah, just like the nuance in, in his performance, uh, one of the most chilling one of the most chilling um, uh, scenes was when he says to to Rick, uh, I I can't jeopardize my company. I, wait, does he say this? I don't know if he says it to Rick, but but the line was I can't jeopardize my company's success to retain an untrustworthy employee. Yeah, he does say something, and that's yeah. when. That's when, that's when. Well, he's already made up his mind. He's we, telling him. Yeah. Yeah. Exactly. That. Yeah. That's when we're like, okay. Well, he's he's clearly capable of, of, uh. <laughs> of getting this untrustworthy employee out of the picture. Um, but yeah, I, uh, his, his was, his was the best performance. I mean, I enjoyed, obviously I enjoyed Rick's, Rick's performance. Um, and they, they, it was funny because I had recently watched the sisters brothers and they had really great chemistry on Riz, uh, Riz Ahmed and Jake Gyllenhaal had really great chemistry on, on camera, camera in that movie as well. Um, he plays a very not to get off track, but Jake Gyllenhaal plays a very uh, different character in 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 that movie, um, kind of getting away from the the quirky uh, like idiosyncratic sociopath um, mm. motif. But uh, yeah, both of both of them both of them I think work really well on screen together. What about you? I mean, it's Jake for sure. Like, yeah, it, it, it's Jake. <laughs> um, I'm trying to think of a recent Jake movie where he's just not the not the star. Like Prisoners, he's absolutely the star. Um, Nocturnal Animals, I think you could sell me on Amy Adams. You could sell hmm. me on Amy Adams um, being the star of that movie. But um, yeah, I don't know. I just think this is his thing. And he just does such a good job of being this creepy, just sociopathic monster that can camouflage himself so well like when he's just saying hello and he's so proud to be working there to the newscasters and he's so good at camouflage and he can just like he's so believable in the way that he can just smile as he is literally leveraging his content to his boss for sex like that is something he's doing with a smile on his face with just unbelievably creepy subtlety that I think is really hard to pull off. Like there's an easy avenue for this character to be too over the top, too goofy, too just like not believable because that's a a trap that a lot of movies that try and build around a sociopath, a creepy sociopath will fall into where it's just too over the top and not believable. But Lou Bloom is a believable modern American figure. Like you would not surprise you if this guy existed in real life, right? Right. And right. I think that was huge. And I think that's a testament to what Jake was doing. I wonder if the that's a that's an interesting point because I wonder if if the if the city of LA can accelerate that um dismantling of morality among people, right? Like uh clearly he's he's hustling and he's trying to survive. Um but you've got to ask the question of like nature versus versus nurture and like uh like how did he how did he 
get like this. We don't know much about his backstory. We don't know about well, his upbringing. Well, here's the thing about that. Um, I'm very pro non-backstory. Like, I, I think most movies, I, I don't like getting backstories. I, I like a lot of movies. Like, that's the better thing about movies. TV shows, I think backstories are important. You have a lot more time. You have a lot more space to do that. Um, it's important to know how... It, it's cool to see how Walter White became Walter White. Right. I don't right. need to see why Jake became a sociopath in a movie. You only have a certain amount okay. of time anyway. You have an hour and a half. I don't want to spend any time. Like, that's why I think flashbacks are cheap. Most of the time, I'm not mm. really pro flashback because I think it's just an out. And if you do a good enough job in the moment of explaining this character, you don't have to go to the flashbacks. I think flashbacks is an indictment on your storytelling ability of what's happening right now. Because as a viewer, I want you to sell me on who this person is right now and why I should care. I don't need to know okay. how they grew up like that. I don't think that's interesting at all. Efficient movie watcher. <laughs> I mean, like that's how movies should be anyway. I think I'm very like I think you have a limited amount of time, and I think it's a crutch. I really do think flashbacks are a crutch by and large. Yes, there are movies that do it well, but I think ultimately, I did not once think as I'm watching this movie like you know what would have made this movie better if I saw Lou getting beaten by his mom at like seven years old. I don't need to see that. Like I, yeah. I like the mystery surrounding how he isn't the mystery better than you just flat out telling us what happened to him as a kid to turn him out, to, like turn him into this monster. I like the mystery of it. I like wondering how this guy just was on the outskirts and is clearly like almost 40 and just surviving the way he did. How is he like, I love thinking about it. I would rather think about it and toss these ideas around with you after the movie yeah. happens versus yeah. you just tell me Explain in it. the movie. Yeah. I think it just dumbs it down. And I think it, it's kind of insulting to your audience. <laughs> well, we know, we know what kind of plot person you are. You're just like, <laughs> let's no frills. Let's just, let's, let's get into it straight away. Like yeah. give me, give me rising action. Give me climax. Give me, What's well, even just give that? Me resolution. Just do do the thing. Like, don't overdo it. It's almost like writing. So I look at it as like editing. So if you have a lot of semicolons, I think flashbacks are like the semicolons of movies, where you're like you're adding mm. all this parenthetical information that if you just did your job as a writer, you could cut out most articles. Like my articles included. Like if I have a good editor, they're gonna slice out twenty five to thirty percent of what I wrote. Yeah. Because you don't need it. You trim the fat, and I think trimming the fat with movies is getting rid of the just why somebody is the way they are i i think it's just better i if you're a good storyteller you don't need the backstory yeah i think it depends on the um i think it depends on the film um it but and and this is the obviously this is a this is a massive discussion um uh based on like <laughs> decades and decades of, 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 of film history and people who are a lot smarter than I am who have tried to, uh, you know, figure out what, what formula works best. Um, as a writer with me, I don't know what they're, they should, (laughs) they should clearly consult with, with Chase Thomas. Um, as, I don't know, as a writer, as someone, you know, as someone who's written feature films, um, one of the, the things that I think, uh, I've gotten better at to your point is to only include the most essential information mm-hmm. and to make sure uh, I'm, I'm very similar to you in making sure that, you know, the plot and the script itself has momentum yeah. um, because those are, they're not only very easy to get into. They're also, um, they're very easy to follow. Yeah. Uh, like within the first eight minutes of, of, of um of this movie you know um we are we essentially like we know what lou is about we know uh who the characters are we're we're basically introduced to uh, to all of the most relevant people and we're we're just on like a speeding train mm-hmm. immediately um so that's and it would hurt the movie like if you went and i think it would hurt the momentum of the movie to keep going back of like what lou was like as a kid yeah, as especially as a thriller. Like I don't think yeah. you want to interrupt thrillers, but something like if you're watching, I don't know, if you're watching Little Women, which I thought was a great, great movie, um, it might, yeah, it might help to to play around with with time a little bit, just to, you know, if if you're doing a character study, um, 
I think you have a, a lot more freedom to move in and out of certain time frames. Uh, if you're if, you, if you're making a thriller, I don't think you want to, you know, interrupt that by going back to oh, and this is how this is how he was raised and how is you know how is why he is the way he is. It's that's a good point. It's a good yeah. point. Don't want it. Don't need it. <laughs> and I say because nocturnal animals is kind of like that. They go back and forth um, a little bit. It's actually no because it's uh, based on the book. But never mind. Um, though I just it can get clunky and it can take you out of the moment. And we need to stay in the L.A. Nor. And uh, I think that was important. I thought this was also like one of my favorite shot movies I've ever seen. And the guy who shot this really? shoots um, a lot of Paul Thomas Anderson's films. Oh, really? Yeah. So Robert Elswit was a cinematographer for this movie, um, but he's a regular cinematographer for Paul Thomas Anderson movies. And I think that really helped. The, um, the soundtrack and the uh, the cinematography was just incredible. I I didn't know that. That's that's uh because most of the, the the cinematography struck me as as adding like very much adding to the momentum of the story mm-hmm. um, i think there were a lot of handheld shots but then there were also a lot of shots in and out of traffic that were that were great um i wonder if this person shot uh the master um it's i would be possible. interested to look look into his look into his uh his his film repertoire interesting it's very possible <laughs> uh i don't know if you felt this but there was there were several moments when whenever Bill Paxton was on screen where I felt like I was in Twister, <laughs> or I was like he was like oh we we gotta go like get get in the van like what? <laughs> I didn't I don't know I didn't really feel like that with him I did feel bad because I think this was his last movie because I think he died not too long after this which was really oh sad. really yeah he um yeah not too long after but um he was great. Like he was, he was fantastic in this like minor role. Um, there was really not one bad, like, was there anyone who were just like, mm, this was not needed. I don't think there, I, I don't think anyone fit that mold. I think everyone was perfectly cast. Yeah. I had no, no issues with pretty much like any of the, any of the acting. Like I thought it was, I thought it was, thought it was really solid. I thought everyone delivered, um, a great performance and and with Riz Ahmed who's most of his most of his scenes were in in the car and yet he still delivered a lot of physicality to to those lines um a lot of Aaron Paul energy from him <laughs> what do Jesse, you mean like Jesse Walt there was some vibes like that where he's like I where Walt obviously being Lou Bloom here where it's just like I am the danger as he get grows in confidence as a drug kingpin and Lou getting uh, more yeah. confident of just like he he clearly I mean Lou is a sociopath and Walt um I don't think he's a sociopath just a bad person um but yeah I, I don't know that that like I think also the attire I think he shared a wardrobe with Jesse Pinkman uh, for this movie so that was a good touch um, oh. Yeah, I'm that dude I'm completely making that up but it just looked like, it to me. <laughs> like Jesse had those gigantic hoodies. And uh, Riz Ahmed is wearing a gigantic hoodie most of this movie. Yeah, you you do kind of like wonder where all of the his his like like where does he like he says he lives lives in a garage and like right. and yet he's still he's still kind of uh, like we never we never and I don't know maybe this is this is like ideally how you would like a movie to be done where you don't want to know much about about rick's background but no. like uh I, i'm always wondering well i mean can we can we learn a little bit about him or uh he, it seems like he doesn't really have that much that much style uh but would love to i think he's just love a flame to, out like he's just someone who's made a lot of bad decisions like i think he has a drug problem i think he um is desperate and answers an ad like the ad he answered didn't even say what job it was yeah i i think that was enough to know about like this guy just has no idea but then there is some comedy to this movie like this you could see this as like a comedy because there is some stuff where like lou some of his line delivery where he just gets really agitated about 
like you don't have leverage he points out to rick you don't have any leverage uh you cannot do anything and he just rick's looking at him horrified that he's just like nope sorry you are agreeing to that and that is it you can you don't have the power in this economy to do and you're like oh my god okay yeah He's like, I could have gotten more money, couldn't I have? <laughs> he was like, you absolutely could have. And then they speed off. That was right. a good scene. That was a great scene. I like it. So any final thoughts on Nightcrawler? How many stars do you give it? Um, I give it I give it four. Okay. Yeah. I give it four stars. It's uh it's a thrill ride. Um even the trailer, I remember watching the trailer and being like, Oh, oh my god, this is gonna be this is gonna be uh uh, an ordeal, isn't it? Mm-hmm. Um, yeah, but I, generally, I think I think it, the movie talks about how you know violence has become a spectator sport in America, you know, and I think we demand so much shock value uh, that we become desensitized to it, um, and you know, we see this this desensitization uh, embodied in, in Lou's character because he's he's completely detached from reality um you know and from the way that he talks to rick who is effectively his employee Mm. you know to to, to the way that he propositions the news director and that super creepy dinner scene uh you know everything is a transaction for for lou and i think um i think that the movie so that's that's one point second point is i think the movie underscores this almost collective action problem that we have in American society, um, you know, we're, we're maybe we're too comfortable or too detached or too engrossed in consuming the pain of, of others, you know, as if it were some off the shelf product, uh, we're too engrossed in all of that to stop long enough and, and to feel empathy for, for one another. And I think, um, I really do think that think to some degree, this movie is a commentary on the, the hyperbolic uh, go to extremes nature of, of nightly television news. Um, and I'm, I'm running with that (laughs) because, because I, I, I tend not to watch like channel three action news or, or Fox, Fox five or whatever, cause it's all just terrible stuff. Um, and it's not necessarily like, yes, terrible things do happen every day, but it's not reflective of, the reality of, of living in the neighborhood and, and, you know, I think media literacy requires approaching, uh, approaching television, especially nightly television news with the, the lens of, um, well, the, the, the news station needs ratings because that's how everyone stays employed. And to get ratings, you have to outdo the other news stations and to outdo the other news stations, you have to find stories and put on stories that grip people, um, in, in very lizard brain type, type ways. Um, and the easiest way to do that is to play up, you know, sex, fear, and <laughs> just g- general d- disaster. Um, so I'm glad, I'm glad, you know, Dan Gilroy made this. I think it was Albeit hyperbolic, I think it, I think it's a cool commentary on um, how we all maybe need to take a step back and and ask ourselves, like, what are we really watching when we watch the nightly news? Yeah. Well, I think uh, that'll do it for this episode. Um, what are we watching next week? You said you were going to save the reveal. All right. Have you seen Have you seen Wildlife? I have not. I think I think that's the next one. I've heard I've heard very good things about it. Paul Dano and and Jake G. Ooh, yes, this is right up my alley. Oh yeah, I'm I'm all in. Yeah, let's you, do it. You have me at uh, Jake G. Also, yeah. <laughs> I had you at let's watch another Jake Gyllenhaal movie next. Week I don't think I'm ever just going to say no to that. I don't think there's a <laughs> there's a point in my life where I would say no to a Jake movie. Let's see if we can get him on the show, dude. I you talk about me imploding, me interviewing Jake Gyllenhaal <laughs> would just it'd be be a little creepy because I'd just be like, "So you're the best." It wouldn't be an interview; it'd just be me complimenting him in different ways for forty five minutes, and hit, and then him just going, "Is there a question there?" And I'm like, "No, I just wanted to say that." Um, yeah, that's but thanks, probably how thanks. It goes. Yeah, he's like, "No, but um, 
but let me just don't don't say anything. Let me just keep talking. Let yeah. me just like keep, let me just keep. He's like keep, this is the best interview I've ever had. And you're like, yeah, <laughs> I know what I'm doing. I'm a professional. I'm a professional. There you go. Professional Jake Gyllenhaal fan. Philip Musay, thank you, sir. As always, um, we can follow you on Twitter at Philip Musay. You can follow me at Chase underscore Thomas, and uh, we will be back next Sunday. Wildlife. Good evening, everyone. <laughs> All right. See you guys next week. This has been Ingram, radio voice of the Atlanta Braves, and I'm here to tell you that you've reached the end of today's episode of the Chase Thomas podcast. As a friend of the podcast, I'd like to say thank you for listening to today's episode and hope you return for the next one. To show your support for the program, tell a friend or coworker or even a family member about the program. And if you're an Apple podcast listener, leave the show a rating and a review. It goes a long way. That'll do it for me. But don't forget to listen to myself and the rest of the team at 680 The Fan and the Braves Radio Network this season. Go Braves! Nicely done, nephew. Chase Thomas Podcast. Hell yeah. Sugar Ray Leonard, Roberto Duran, Marvelous Marvin Hagler, and Thomas Hearns. Legends, whose four-way rivalry defined one of the greatest eras in boxing history. Relive their decade of dominance in the new Showtime sports documentary, The Kings, a four-part series premiering Sunday, June 6th, only on Showtime.